Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Dear students, President Ramos Horta, Ambassador, dear Inge Kaul, this is the fourth time the Hertie School co-hosts the Kapuczynski Development Lecture Series, um, and we're delighted. We do that with our partners from UNDP and the European Commission. The project is a joint initiative of the European Commission, the United Nations Development Programme, and the Hertie School, and the project is funded by the European Commission. Ladies and gentlemen, for the Hertie School of Governance, having this lecture with such a distinguished international speaker tonight is something that is close to what we do and what we want to achieve at the school. I remember that uh, four years ago, five years ago probably, when we started to discuss this cooperation, I wanted to understand better who Richard Kapuczynski was and why that lecture series was named after him. So I started to read and I remember coming across a quote which I often quote, um, it's not directly related to tonight's topic, but it's the overarching theme of development and poverty he captures in a brutal sentence that every Hertie school student, every member of the Hertie community can easily identify with. And I quote from The Shadow of the Sun from 2001, people are not hungry because there is no food in the world. There is plenty of it. There is a surplus, in fact. But between those who want to eat and the bursting warehouses stands a tall obstacle indeed, politics. It's a very powerful way of describing the world poverty problem in two lines. There is enough for everyone, we can't share, and the reason is politics, period. What's the next problem? What we want to do at the Hertie School is to bridge the world of politics, the world of the third sectors, the world of private activities to solve the very, very basic problems we all face, whether it's poverty, whether it's hunger, whether it's security, whether it's digital governance or international security. And we know that politics is always the core problem. And this is why we sit here. This is why we study together, and this is why we have distinguished people like you, President Ramos Horta, a Nobel Peace Prize winner here tonight, to share your thoughts with you on a very special topic which is close to your heart, but where politics also plays a major role. The evening is very simple. After my quick introduction, I'm happy to pass the floor to a close friend and colleague, uh, the ambassador uh, of the European Union, the representative here in Berlin, Richard Kühnel. We will then have uh, Karen Cirillo from UNDP addressing you and introducing tonight's speaker. Then we will have the main lecture. And afterwards, I'm particularly delighted that another very close friend, colleague at the Hertie School, adjunct professor since the very first uh, days of the school, um, our very own 
Professor Inge Kaul is with us. Um, she was the first director of the Human Development Report Office at UNDP, and so there is no other person better qualified to host tonight's discussion than you, Inge, and I'm delighted uh, that you will later on, after the introductory uh, lecture, take the floor and moderate the discussion. So, the only thing I can end with is, as usual, let's try to learn something tonight, and I look forward to fascinating ideas, discussions, and conversations. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for these very friendly words, dear President. Excellency, what a pleasure and what an honor um, to have you here in Berlin, um, Germany, one of your favorite uh, countries uh, in Europe, as you have said before, at least when it comes to counting the many times that, that you're here, Professor. Dear colleagues, um, it's a fantastic opportunity. I am very pleased and honored that as a European Commission, we sometimes, you spoke about politics, uh, we sometimes do um, things uh, right. Um, and I think uh, um, hosting this uh, series of lectures, um, nobody would uh, deny us that, uh, at least on this one, I think uh, we've been doing something very right and uh, something very important. You mentioned, uh, President, it's the fourth time at your prestigious place that we have this. Uh, lecture, but actually globally it's a uh, hundred times that we have done this. Um, and uh, according to the figures uh, I have here, we have reached some 130,000 people through this uh, series of lectures, which we're doing together with uh, UNDP, um, which is uh, our very, very good uh, and close uh, partner in doing this at prestigious universities um, around Europe. Um, so the lecture honors the legacy, the name of this talented Polish journalist, writer, Richard Kapuscinski, thanks to his famous reportages and books describing developing countries and all continents, he became known to the world as the world chronicler or as the voice of the poor. What matters is that he belongs to a category of reporters who through their work have gained anonymous recognition from their peers. Kapuscinski is often quoted as saying that life is truly known only to those who suffer, lose, endure adversity and stumble from defeat to defeat. Today the words solidarity, partnership are more relevant than ever um, and I think these days and these weeks we have to think much about solidarity and partnership in the world. We live in a world where everything is uh, interconnected, uh, the, the challenges are global, and still some believe that they can find egoistic, nationalistic solutions to global problems. In Europe, we do not uh, believe in this. Uh, the EU is committed uh, to remaining a global leader in, in development and in finding multilateral solutions to global problems. Of course, the world around is not um, uh, standing still, and so we cannot be standing still when it comes to making the necessary changes at a global level. And we've been speaking before um, that uh, we also have uh, the privilege that uh, it was you, President, uh, who also suggested the European Union for uh, its Nobel Prize. So um, I think we owe it uh, a lot also to your foresight because I think we shouldn't forget that the EU was not created just as an end in itself, just 
to help Europe, the European continent, to come out of, uh, of, of war and, and misery. But it is also a force to change the world um, very much uh, to become a better and a more stable world. I remember when I was working um, at the United Nations, we had Secretary General Kofi Annan, and he always spoke of this triangle of relationship between peace, development, and human rights. Now, when we look at uh, the um, agenda of the last decades, I think we've come some way on the development agenda, not as far um, um, as we would have liked um, in some places, but at the same time, we did have quite some results and achievements. If we look at the human rights agenda, um, still huge issues around the world, um, and we are far and maybe in some places uh, even further from coming to a situation which we want to achieve. And when we look at peace and security, well, we have not achieved it either. So I think what uh, President Enderlein said at the beginning, it's about politics. Um, it is a global commitment and a global responsibility to change politics that we can move forward on this triangle development, security, and human rights to go in the right direction. And who better can speak to us than you, President, um, Nobel Laureate, uh, yourself, uh, you have led your country out of a most difficult situation of war. You have led it into the path of development, into improving a human rights situation. Um, also, your country is not there yet, uh, but I think uh, you have done a lot um, to help not only your country to bring it uh, on the right way, but also to set an example. And still, you are a voice globally when you work uh, still with the United Nations. Um, um, questions of peace building um, are on your agenda. I think we can learn a lot from you tonight. Uh, I'm pleased and privileged uh, uh, to be here, and I think uh, all of us are eagerly awaiting your comments. Um, before uh, you can take the floor, um, I want to pass the floor to Karen Cyrilla uh, from UNDP, our partner in this project, um, and I wish all of you a fascinating evening with uh, our guest speaker of tonight. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, first, a very big thank you to the Herity School of Governance for hosting us for the fourth time. It's very impressive to see so many people in the room, both students and people outside of uh, the school. It's really great to have you here. And also a big thank you to the European Commission, who has been our partner for 10 years. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year, so it's been a very fruitful partnership, and we look forward to continuing. As those before me mentioned, uh, the Kapuczynski Development Lectures brings prominent speakers to European universities to discuss important issues facing our world and gives students the opportunity to discuss these issues with the speakers. We are also welcoming an online audience of people who are watching our live stream. So if you're watching and you would like to ask questions, you can um, follow at uh, hashtag CapTalks, K-A-P-T-A-L-K-A-S, and you can ask your questions on Twitter. We'll be tracking for them. Um, now on to our lecturer for tonight. Thank you very much for being here with us. We are honored to welcome His Excellency Jose Ramos Horta, former president of Timor-Leste and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, here to speak on peace building, our roles and responsibilities. Um, he is a very appropriate person to speak on this topic. In fact, he has been called a founding father of the first new democracy of the millennium. Not only does he have academic degrees in peace studies and human rights law, but he has actually put those educational ideas into practice. 
For many years, he traveled the world pleading for the cause of the people of his country. He advocated dialogue with the occupier. He, uh, in 1992, presented a peace plan. And in this plan, he provided concrete proposals for humanitarian cooperation and a growing UN presence. This laid the groundwork for independence, which was eventually realized in 2001. And then he served as foreign minister following independence, then prime minister, and finally president from 2007 to 2012. He has worked closely with resistance movements in the United Nations, seeing issues of peace from all sides of the conversation. He is uniquely positioned to speak on the positive role of the UN, as well as its challenges and its failures. But most importantly, he recognizes how important peace is to achieving progress and for countries' future development. In the context of today's push for the sustainable development goals, as well as a constantly changing and sometimes dangerous world social climate, he will speak to how we can ensure the world shares responsibilities for our collective future. I'd like to welcome him. Thank you. Uh, good evening. I will not uh, say, uh, uh, be too formal, uh, thanking everybody, mention everybody's name, because it will take more time, so I will go straight to the to the topic. I have not uh, prepared a speech as such. I struggled with it yesterday, today, but I have not been able to come with a, uh, a formal uh, speech. And uh, probably I don't need it, because I lived, I lived uh, this uh, topic, uh, taking peace building to the wall. Uh, I lived with the UN. Uh, either as an observer or as a victim of the indifference of the international community or as a beneficiary of the UN when the UN acted, uh, later also as an agent of the UN deployed in West Africa by the Ban Ki-moon. And then later he, Ban Ki-moon asked me to chair a panel on UN peace operation. So with all of that, do I need to write something? Uh, I can just talk, uh, share with you uh, my inconsequential uh, views. Uh, but uh, first and uh, foremost, probably, I will begin with my own country. Because uh, Timor-Leste, uh, where we are today, uh, is obviously uh, thanks to the determination of the people to fight for freedom, regardless of the cost, the consequences. Uh, but also, uh, we will be still fighting, and indefinitely, forever, if it were not for the mobilization of conscience, of, of people, of civil society, and uh, of governments, and the role of uh, the UN. So it's a combination of many factors that led to the changes in Indonesia itself and uh, in uh, Timor-Leste. If I'm asked, and a few days ago I was asked by a journalist to uh, uh, do a balance of the past uh, 15 years uh, since uh, independence, I would say, uh, the greatest success of all has been national reconciliation. 
healing the wounds of divided communities of a divided country. Because uh, evil or wrongs were not only on one side. In that we, the Timorese, we all uh, angels, the other side were wrong. Uh, or only the people on the resistance side, on the right side of uh, history, we were the ones who were committed no errors, and those on the other side uh, were all wrong. Uh, all the crimes have been committed were all on Indonesian side and not nothing on the Timor side. So we are not going to judge anyone. We receive the gift of independence, of freedom, with courage, with honesty, we heal the wounds among Timorese people. But also we heal the wounds uh, with our Indonesian brothers and uh, sisters. Timor-Leste is predominantly Catholic country, 98% practicing Catholic. Indonesia, as you know, the largest Muslim majority in the world. We were, uh, I don't like to use the word, we were enemies. <laughs> I never use this word. We were on uh, different sides of uh, trenches, different sides of uh, history. Indonesia was on one side, we were another trench. Uh, there were people who killed on both sides. Of course, vast majority on our side, the weaker, the smaller, but they also lost people. And uh, so we also extend a hand of uh, friendship with Indonesia, and Indonesia didn't reject it. And sometimes it's easier uh, for the victor powers, the victor side, to show humility. It's not always, because sometimes you win, even in election, you know, you have a democratic free election, you win, instead of making a magnanimous, uh, a diplomatic, uh, elegant uh, gesture to the other side, you uh, gloat over their defeat. Uh, but easier, if you have won, you've succeeded, uh, to show wisdom and humility and embrace the other side. But the, those who perceived, who feel that they lost, it's very difficult for them to, uh, 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 to, uh, to forgive or to accept. So you have to do extra effort for the other side to, uh, to accept that they uh, did not succeed. So we did every effort uh, to show respect uh, to uh, Indonesia. And the Indonesian side showed their statesmanship, uh, turn around, walk uh, back towards us at the bridge, shook hands, and since we have developed the best possible relationship of any two countries in Southeast Asia or anywhere in Asia. I guarantee any uh, researcher, a scholar, who wish to uh, review a uh, relationship between two, any given two countries in Asia, uh, even in Southeast Asia itself, you will not find two that have better relation than Timor-Leste and uh, Indonesia. 
and you can look even on practical policy matters day to day. For instance, uh, immediately after independence, when Timor-Leste has zero money, Indonesian authorities encourage Indonesian universities to welcome Timorese students, paying only local fees, not as foreign students. And this uh, continues till this very day. Timorese passport holders do not need a visa for Indonesia and uh, vice versa. We have uh, thousands of Timorese students studying in uh, Indonesia and uh, many thousands of Indonesians coming back to uh, live and work in uh, Timor-Leste. So this is the relationship between a, the largest Muslim majority country in the world, Indonesia, 260, 270 million people, and uh, one of the smallest in the world, Timor-Leste, 98% Catholic. So we, are, we were at war, we had the conflict, and uh, very different in the sense of uh, history, uh, uh, spiritual belief, and yet we have the best possible relationship. So this is, for me, uh, the most successful that I can say after uh, all these years. And it was quick. And that's partly because throughout the struggle of the people of Timor-Leste, Never once we were tempted uh, to demonize the other side. Demonize them as a people, demonize them as a religious, different religious community. Uh, and never once our fighters, we did have a, a very active fighting group, never once target Indonesian civilians. Not one throughout the 24 year of uh, struggle. So this is, and this is important, uh, because uh, if you uh, demonize others as a people, as an ethnicity or religion, to serve your uh, a, a purpose, you demonize people, uh, you in, literally indoctrinate, well, very difficult later to switch off when time comes. With us, it was not necessary to change discourse with the people. We always said Indonesians were our brothers and sisters. And uh, there was pressure on the Timorese leadership to push for an international tribunal to uh, try the crimes of the past. We, as Timorese people, we rejected. And it doesn't mean there was no criticism of us, leaders, who rejected a special tribunal to try the crimes of the past. Yes, we had a civil society that criticized, and, uh, but we face, we explain. Uh, <coughs> and <coughs> these policies have a, a, what enable us then to also to focus on uh, the post-conflict building of the state uh, state institution that didn't exist, economy that didn't exist. The country was, we had a population traumatized, hundreds of thousands uprooted, displaced. We have to tackle the situation in every front, simultaneously. There were, you cannot say one is more a priority than uh, others. And we ourselves, Timorese, we are not super organizers. We, are, we improvise a lot. And uh, we don't like doing things in a very long term. <laughs> uh, we work better under pressure. 
If it's tomorrow, yeah, we have to do it. It's tomorrow. But if you say, well, six months from now, well, why are you uh, such in a hurry with six months, you know? So, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so we have to do things. Uh, but to achieve all of that, uh, we had ex ex exceptional international solidarity, whether uh, member states, countries, whether international uh, multilateral institutions, the United Nations with all its agencies, or, or uh, the European Union, uh, and individual member countries of the European Union, our neighbors like Australia, Japan, China, and uh, so on. So it's not like we did it ourselves. No, we had tremendous uh, support from uh, governments, from, from institutions, but also from uh, civil societies, uh, local governments from uh, like neighboring countries like uh, Australia. And uh, this is, uh, uh, I would say, the greatest uh, achievement. And uh, I would say uh, uh, this year uh, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the holding of a referendum on self-determination. It was that referendum, August 30, 1999, that resulted in Timor and Indonesian parting ways. Uh, independence came two years later after a short period, two years of transition by, uh, uh, with the UN administration. So I want to touch on that. Uh, the UN Security Council in 1999 authorized a two-year UN transition mission to Timor-Leste. It was the first time the UN undertook the responsibility of uh, governing a country a territory and preparing for independence. The special representative of Secretary General was uh, the equivalent to the Prime Minister. Uh, he also had almost uh, uh, exclusive legislative authority and even judiciary. So very strong uh, mandate. But it had only two years. Uh, I tried to argue at, in New York at the UN, and I remember talking with the Undersecretary General for uh, Peacekeeping, uh, uh, that Timur needed a five-year transition, and he said, if you manage to convince the Security Council two-year transition, you'll be lucky. But also in my own country, many of my competitors thought five years was too long and two years was already enough. So we had a two-year transition. But can you imagine a country devoid of institutions, profoundly traumatized, a people uprooted, and the independence to take place within two years? only the UN Security Council could think that that was possible. And this was, was a mandate given to Kofi Annan and to Sergio Vieira de Mello. So they were there for two years, two years left, and what was the country left behind? Well, very uh, just a skeleton uh, semblance of a state because it's impossible, you know. Timor-Leste was not Namibia. For all the uh, ills of the apartheid regime, uh, they left behind institutions. 
that were inherited by Swapo. That was uh, <coughs> had far more uh, resources, human resources than us. It was not even uh, Zimbabwe when Ro Northern uh, Rhodesia transitioned to Zimbabwe at independence. Well, uh, ZANU, Robert Mugabe, received a organized economy, an organized country, institutions. We didn't. And uh, <clears throat> because there was a period of violence, so everybody scattered. The administration that was there broke down. The economy ceased to uh, function. We had to start from zero. And we did. Of course, member states, uh, international community stayed on to help building on the institutions of the state. And we are still doing it uh, today. And uh, Freedom House, a Washington-based think tank, uh, conservative. The other day, uh, well, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, in one of the uh, second report on democracies in Southeast Asia, uh, classified Timor-Leste as the number one, the best functioning democracy in Southeast Asia. And I can say, you know, uh, what is a, a remarkable indicator of this is that uh, in 2017, we had elections. Absolutely peaceful, zero uh, incident of violence. But it did not produce a, an absolute majority for any party. The largest, the most voted party tried to form government, didn't succeed, got a, went into a minority government, but then was not able to survive in the parliament. The program was voted down, the budget was rejected. So following the constitution, the president consulted with everybody. We had early elections uh, a year later. Again, it did not produce a result like in that, you know, an absolute majority for any party. Like in Spain, uh, last year, they had to do, I think, three elections in one year. And uh, to some extent here, uh, in a similar situation in Germany and in many other uh, European countries like Belgium. And uh, <clears throat> so we, the current governing uh, uh, government now is a three-party coalition, not the most voted party because the most voted party could not have enough uh, support in the parliament. So there was a coalition and that coalition we have a, a political system similar to uh, German, the uh, semi-presidential system. The, the power rests with the prime minister, but the president has some authority in that he can veto a budget. He can block a government. So this, we had this uh, uh, impasse for many months the budget was first vetoed by the president, went back to the parliament, they sent back to him, he relented and uh, voted. Incredible tension, uh, voices are raised, insults written in the social media, but all happened only 
in the confines of the parliament or in the social media. Zero political violence. So we uh, a test of our maturity of our de democracy, maturity of our political uh, institutions. Other than that, producing majorities or no majorities. And recently, I, I spoke to some uh, teenagers and children in one of the private schools in Timor. And some of the young people are complaining about to, what is this democracy of Timor? You know, the, uh, the president is not, uh, they, they express frustration. And they say, yes, uh, that's consequence of the constitution we wanted consequence of the democracy we wanted. Democracy come with these consequences in that sometimes you don't have a uh, stable uh, governing uh, 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 body. Yes, we could adopt one party system. Maybe North Korea would be uh, more effective. Uh, or maybe some other one part. But I don't think anyone in my country would uh, consider that uh, at all. As also, uh, in my country, the idea of death penalty is just something completely out of our mind vocabulary. We are the only country in uh, Southeast Asia, and actually one of the very few in all of Asia, that does not have death penalty and we don't have life in prison. Maximum prison sentence, I think, is 25 years, or yeah, 25, 20 or 25, and no uh, uh, death sentence. And, the, and it never occurred to anyone. The, the, and that is in contrast with most of Asia. South Korea, uh, dynamic democracy, Japan have a death uh, penalty. Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, uh, Singapore, uh, Thailand, uh, Philippines, I don't know where they have reintroduced. It, they, they had before, they uh, banned, and then uh, I think there have been discussion about the reintroduce. I don't know whether they, they did. And then the rest, most of all, uh, Asia uh, have. <clears throat> now I, I will uh, turn to uh, the United Nations uh, itself. In 2017, uh, a new Secretary General was sworn in, Antonio Guterres. You could not have a, a more qualified person than that. In the sense, he was Prime Minister of his country. Uh, he dealt with concrete situations in his own country or in uh, overseas missions, like Portugal participating in uh, NATO operations, UN operations in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in many other uh, f uh, fields. And uh, then he was 10 years as High Commissioner for Human Rights. And he uh, did an extraordinary mission as High Commissioner. And that's why he literally unanimously had the endorsement of the General Assembly and Security Council. He was sworn in, took office the same time as uh, the new president of the uh, United States. And he took office at the same time as Europe is absorbed, partly with Brexit, or pretty much with Brexit, 
and the, the whole uncertainty in the rest of uh, Europe. He takes office at a time when uh, uh, many uh, of our traditional generous development partners have uh, uh, reallocated the development budget to security to uh, humanitarian, uh, other humanitarian challenges. <clears throat> and as we all know, uh, traditionally only five countries that always allocated, committed development assistance, ODA, to about 0.7%. Traditionally, Sweden, Finland, Norway, and Denmark, and the Netherlands. But even Finland already no longer, zero point. I think they changed it. Remarkably, uh, UK under uh, David Cameron uh, uh, allocated 0.7, the only G7 country that has done it. I'm just not familiar whether under Theresa May, UK has continued. Uh, but it was the only industrialized country, G7 country, that under David Cameron, increased to 0.7. But since the economic financial crisis, 2008, 2009, uh, every major donor country has decreased their development assistance. And that assuming that development assistance, ODA, has had real impact in the lives of the people it was supposed to help in the course of the last 45 or 40, 50 years. So the new Secretary General, the UN, uh, is dealing with this uh, uh, current international uh, situation. And it's not only uh, the political, uh, social, and some security challenge in Europe. Well, look in Asia. Five, four, five billion people uh, that inhabit the Asia region. Our planet has 8 uh, billion people today. By 2030, it will be 9 billion people. Just imagine the pressure, just for our very basic survival, the pressure on water resources, the pressure on land, just to produce enough. I don't even mention the impact on industries overfishing, depleting fish stocks around the world. I don't mention uh, illegal logging, destroying forests around the world. So, because you know, uh, we cannot look at the UN uh, dissociated from all of these problems that are not only the traditional security uh, problems, but uh, non-conventional, non-traditional security uh, challenges, namely environment, namely increasing inequality, extreme poverty. And this is where we, the UN is uh, uh, today. Less resources, greater tensions among the P5 countries, the permanent five or security council, and the more. Just the, uh, f yesterday, a few days ago, India and Pakistan increased tension. South China Sea, 
increasingly militarized. China claimed most of South China Sea. The U.S. challenged that it is stand for freedom of navigation. Uh, little UK uh, sent uh, two modern uh, warships as if the Chinese would be so intimidated by that. <laughs> Australia loyally joined the UK, also sent a little warship to South China Sea. <laughs> the Chinese, I'm sure, very, very nervous about that. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, uh, instead of searching for uh, diplomatic solutions, the first reaction from everybody, let's send warships and do it. And my fear is that, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone will be irrational that will, on purpose, fire some. But yeah, accidents always happen. A more nervous pilot, because they will all fly in the region, yeah, might fire a missile. And then, all hell break loose. Fortunately, <clears throat> so far, <clears throat> we have not yet uh, had any major, major, but look at what happened in, uh, in Kashmir just uh, the other day, what that can uh, lead, uh, lead to. So can, are we to expect the UN, or are we to hold the UN responsible <laughs> to manage all of these uh, challenges? Where is the European Union? Where, is, uh, reg where are regional organizations? Who is dealing with Venezuela? Organization of American states? In the past, in some situations, they are quite effective. Who is dealing with Myanmar? ASEAN, fulfilling its responsibilities in addressing Myanmar. In, and if we look at the regional organizations that should support the, the whole multilateral system, the UN system, I would say for all the difficulties, the limitations, the African Union and their sub-regional organizations have been the most in the forefront of taking responsibilities in addressing African uh, conflicts, like Somalia. After the US withdrawal, Somalia was abandoned. It was the Africans who decided to go and taking casualties there. Later, the European Union started financing uh, African peacekeepers in Somalia. And in our report, the high-level independent panel on UN peace operations, we argue with the Security Council, particularly the P5, that whenever there are circumstances, security circumstances, in the African continent that require immediate response. And the first responders are either African Union as such or the regional organization, like in the case of Mali, would be ECOWAS. The UN Security Council should agree, should uh, uh, provide uh, assess contribution to African peacekeepers because they might have the manpower, but they don't have the resources. And that was difficult to convince the P5 uh, to provide direct, uh, we call it uh, assess contribution to the first responders, in this case, to African Union forces fighting in, uh, in Mali, uh, for instance. 
I think uh, I should end here because uh, uh, <coughs> I would prefer to leave uh, uh, <coughs> time for uh, discussion. Uh, but I will uh, have a few more uh, points about the role of uh, the UN. Uh, Myself and 15 colleagues, uh, all with uh, all of them tremendous uh, experience at the level of assistant secretary generals, we were asked by Ban Ki-moon to review all the UN peace operations and to provide uh, recommendations to how to make the UN more effective in anticipating and preventing conflicts in mediating conflicts and in deploying forces faster. So we did a report, we presented to Ban Ki-moon end of 2000, June 2015, and uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, in the last uh, two years since he took office, has made every effort to respond not only to our recommendations, but to other reports, Women, Peace and Security, and the peace-building architecture. These are the three main reports, recommendations that form the basis of the Secretary General effort to streamline, to uh, delegate, to make the UN <coughs> more uh, uh, effective, more responsive. So the Secretary General can do, he does, what is his responsibility, which is limited. And no matter how much reform the Secretary General does to respond to the needs, the challenges. But in the end, as I said many times during the discussions we had in our uh, preparing our report, we may produce a report that will, would merit a summa cum laude in some university. But if member states do not endorse and act on them, our report will gain dust, like many PhD dissertations who read them. And uh, particularly if you have a dissertation that goes to the UN library, it's even worse. Uh, so, uh, but fortunately, it looks like the Secretary General, at least what concerns the Secretary General himself, uh, they are doing at the level of senior management in New York a remarkable effort in uh, adapting the UN to the challenges of today. Because the security challenge of 15 years ago, when a first report was done, ordered by, I think, Boutrous Boutrous Ghali, it was uh, Lakdar Brahimi of Algeria who produced the first well-known uh, Brahimi report, only 15 years later, the nature of security threats, the challenge facing the UN, changed. Look at Mali. The challenge in Mali is no longer a traditional UN peacekeeping. It is a counterinsurgency operation almost. The UN was not, uh, um, is not up to undertake counterinsurgencies. How can the UN prevent conflict? How can the UN mediate? And how can it resolve conflict if it becomes entangled in, in uh, insurgency? And this is what's happening 
uh, in uh, Mali. <coughs> and last uh, but not least, the role of civil society, of uh, individuals. Uh, the Secretary General of the UN, he doesn't command uh, the sixth or seventh fleet. He is not the leader of the largest economy of uh, the world. His power rests, A, on his ability to build bridges with the powers that be in the UN. In, in, in today's age, 21st century, the power of Secretary General rests on the civil society of people around the world to support him, to support the ideals of the UN, to contribute, and I say not to resolve, to contribute towards preventing conflicts, towards resolving conflicts, and to build a sustainable peace uh, around the world. But that is only possible if member states are persuaded by their own people that we must do better. Otherwise, uh, it's all artificial. You know, you have the Secretary General City in New York. He has a hostile U.S. president or indifferent. And then you have an European Union, very important, absorbed with domestic uh, problems from uh, Brexit to Italy, to Austria, uh, to Poland. So what can the Secretary General do? And then we all blame the UN, failures of the UN. Yeah, the UN has failed a few times, has failed in Syria, has failed in Sudan. But failed, why? Well, ask the powers that be. Don't ask the poor Secretary General. Ask the powers that be why we are failing. We have failed in Syria, we're failing. But I also have to say, we cannot blame everybody else. If we had failed in Timor-Leste, if today I was standing here and my country at war, I would not have a, the dishonesty and the audacity to blame the UN or to blame someone. No, we, national leaders, we fail. As we failed in 2006, when we had a major security uh, political challenge, but we addressed it. We were not ashamed to ask international help. I personally call the uh, Prime Minister of Malaysia, Portugal, New Zealand, Australia, of course, in consultation with all my colleagues, yes, ask them to come to help, and they came. <coughs> South Sudan, Congo, Central African Republic. Are we blaming all, uh, everybody else and not ourselves, leaders of the country? My point is to say uh, prevention easier said than done. But prevention of conflict begin at home. Who are the best actors to prevent conflicts? What are the best prescriptions to prevent conflicts in a, in a society? Well, policies that are inclusive, that embrace everybody, that leave no one uh, outside, leave no one behind. 
policies that are not seen as discriminating against one group or another. Inclusive policies, embracing everyone, particularly if you are in a multi-ethnic, multi-religious community, society. That is prevention. Others can help, but responsibility number one comes from us on the ground, those who are the leaders of the country. Because when you look at some of the conflicts around the world, why it's happening, why there is a civil war, well, maybe because a particular ethnic group saw that the central government, either the majority or the minority but in power, denied them their language, discriminate them in opportunities, education, of economics, and all of that. It's as simple as that. Because some leaders in our world, instead of seeing ethnic, cultural, religious diversity as a blessing, they see it as a threat. So, so you start discriminating. You are suspicious of a particular group. Yeah, you create more problems. And then they fight back. And then violence escalates. So prevention is come from us. The UN, the European Union, other neighbors, they can, they can help. But the first actors in prevention of conflicts are national actors. So I stop here and we continue with the conversation. So, Mr. President, thank you very much for your very inspiring, but also at the same time very challenging uh, speech, because you told us much depends on us. So, um, I would uh, uh, like to suggest that we have a few, a very brief exchange between the two of us while you think about your questions, and then we will immediately open up uh, the floor for discussion. Uh, when you were talking, I was thinking of the African proverb, which says that when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. So I would suggest that we leave the uh, current rivalry between the superpowers and the militarization uh, uh, that they undertake for a second part and start first with the activities of the UN and the peace operations on the ground. And I found it very interesting uh, to hear the lessons you draw from the experiences of your own country. When I compare what you did during uh, fighting for your independence and gaining your independence, I was thinking, are the current peace operations not wrongly structured so that we cannot move towards reconciliation working together, being inclusive, working together with the government. Because I think of the situation in Sudan, and here are some people who know probably Sudan better than <laughs> I do. But in Sudan, when I look at the UNDP country program, 
I get the feeling everything is more or less normal. One does development, but uh, sort of limited around Khartoum. When I then look to uh, uh, Darfur, I see thousands and thousands of uh, peacekeepers more or less sitting there, observing, sometimes taking a stroll through the country. But uh, peacekeeping and rehabilitation, humanitarian assistance even, and uh, development is totally separated. When you look at Mali, you find a very similar situation. So um, since we are at a, or you are visiting us at a very opportune moment in time, because we are now, Germany now has a seat in the Security Council for the next two years. So I thought it would be great if you uh, can uh, probably offer some further suggestions on how to improve uh, peace operations on the ground. And I would like to encourage you to do that because I think as a UN official myself and having worked on the ground, I think you have a lot of freedom to do better than the Security Council tells you to do. You have uh, freedom uh, to, to invent, to be innovative, to link to the government, to do more development and peacekeeping operations in tandem. So what suggestions would you have, which probably some of you can note down and which we then can f uh, forward to the foreign ministry, in particular to our minister for, of foreign affairs. What message would you have to give? Uh, well, uh, nothing uh, different from uh, what contained in our uh, report. The, uh, the, Take your pencils out. The report of the high-level independent panel on UN peace operations. I don't even remember the uh, uniting our strengths, something like that. That's the title of uh, our... And, uh, but... Uh, uh, in the report, if you go to it, you Google and you can download, you will see an introduction by me. The report I dedicate uh, to a three or four year old girl called Nyakahat from South Sudan. Uh, I read about it in a Huffington Post, the story of that girl. Uh, in the height of the conflict a few years ago, she walked four hours on foot, guiding her blind father towards a UNICEF uh, feeding center. She arrived there, a diligent uh, UNICEF officer saw her, got her attention, and talked to her, and she was the one who did all the talking, this four-year-old, explaining the situation. She was the one guiding her blind father. And, uh, and my, uh, so I dedicate to this girl, and with two messages. The story of uh, uh, Nyakahat, one, is an indictment of the international community for the failure to prevent that conflict from happening because South Sudan had enormous international presence there. 
How come? You know, because it's not that the UN was not present. It is not that the European Union, the US, and everybody were not present. Probably it had hundreds of uh, uh, specialists in conflict resolution. Why it happened? But at the same time, the, her story tells also the, a positive thing about the UN. If the UN were not there at all, for all the failings, should be dead, many more people would have died. Many more people who have died today have died already in uh, Sudan, South Sudan, if it were not for the, uh, how you say, the flawed UN presence for all the... So uh, the UN, for all the flaws, the, the, uh, the weaknesses, remain absolutely uh, indispensable. In, uh, so uh, that's how uh, I would say, uh, the problem with peacekeeping, uh, that's why our recommendation is, uh, you know, from the moment the Security Council agree to put on the agenda a given uh, major security crisis in the world, well, it would have been already several years because you know the Security Council, like you have a problem happening, it's not automatic, you know, uh, for different reasons. Finally, it goes to the consideration for Security Council. And hopefully, finally, they agree after a few days or a few weeks of debate. From that moment, when the Security Council agreed to deploy an intervention force, to stop bloodshed, it takes normally about nine months for the first forces to be landing in the country concern. The first units to land. Ideally, would have been like you have a, well, two weeks, you know. Uh, so when uh, we had a problem in my country in 2006, it was not a civil war, but I thought we better do something now before uh, we don't. We should not take chances. So we didn't go to Security Council. We went to Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand, and Portugal. We need you, your help to deploy here a special police force. So they did. And then we got Security Council to endorse it. Because if you go through the norm, so that's called first responders or coalition of the willing. And the coalition of the willing is not paid by assessed contribution. Each country pay their own cost or someone else pay the cost uh, to them. But it is hoped that uh, today uh, with the reforms, our recommendations, uh, it, it might be possible to have an early deployment of troops, bef uh, forces, before a conflict get out of hand. But at the same time, the reorganization, and particularly sovereign entity, the country concerned, has to ask. The UN cannot simply decide to, well, let's send forces. They have not asked, but let's send forces. No, it doesn't happen like that. 
Yeah, but we have uh, UN representatives everywhere, so one wonders why then the UN representatives are not more proactive in um, uh, requesting assistance. But I'm wondering whether in a country one needs 16,000 peacekeepers, whether one should not, judging from your experience, put more resources into institution building, making sure that rule of law exists and that um, also the root causes can be uh, uh, tackled. Like uh, in many cases, environmental problems are really the driver of conflict. Well, uh, you know, the UN is essentially a political security institution. The UN, even in taking consideration, UNDP is not a development institution. UNDP doesn't have money. UNDP goes to the European Union. I just tell you a story. You know, I had when I was forty minutes. I had uh, a young. Uh, I don't mention nationality. I mentioned a young European uh, lady working for me as my advisor. And uh, after uh, when uh, six years, seven years later, she uh, asked me. And she was dilemma: Should I work, apply to work with the European Union or the UN? I told her, I said, listen, be realistic, be practical. Go to the European Union because they are the ones who have the money. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the UN, you have to end up going to, the, to Brussels asking for money. So she went to um, Brussels and she's still there today. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> this only to say, there is a, a division of labor. The institutions that deal with... Uh, development infrastructure, be the World Bank, Asian Development Bank in the Asian region, African Development Bank, Africa, and the other uh, institutions like that. They are the ones who uh, should do that. In the case of Timor, there was a very good synergy between the UN and the World Bank, ADB, and the individual member states. Each knew exactly what they are supposed to do. But even then, sometimes overlap, duplication, and so on. But uh, you cannot have a totally perfect system. So sometimes in uh, some countries that I have served before, there is this uh, disillusionment with the UN, partly because they misunderstand the role of the UN. The UN is not there to undertake responsibilities in terms of development, creating jobs. The UN is more like a catalyst. In a, a, number one is security, political, and so on. No, number two, yes, mobilize resources, put pressure on member states, on the donors. Yeah. And when I was in Guinea-Bissau, well, that's what I did. I went beyond my responsibilities. You know, I knew I did have money as a special representative of the Secretary General. But I would go beyond my mandate. I would phone a prime minister here and there. Listen, can you send me, can you give me $500,000 for this and that and that? And uh, so I would actively lobby to deliver some basic things right away to the communities. Yeah, that you can do. Uh, and the Secretary General allow you to do it. Yes, be creative, be uh, proactive, do it. But limited, because the real job of uh, developing infrastructures and all of that, education, uh, agriculture, food security, that is long-term, 
and belong to uh, donor countries, the government concern, donor countries, uh, the banks, banks, I mean, uh, like African Development Bank or Asian Development Bank, not the UN uh, as such. Yeah, nevertheless, uh, I'm rather impatient when I see that 16,000 peacekeepers are in Sudan for 10 years. You know, in the meantime, something could have happened more on the uh, peace building and the development side, and that there is no link between the Khartoum pro development program and uh, the Darfur situation is uh, somehow amazing. Just one figure before opening now the floor for your questions that I would leave with you is that at present, uh, global military spending stands at 1.0 trillion US dollars. Then uh, ODA, Official Development Assistance, amounts to 130 billion, which, if I'm not mistaken, is 10% of the military spending then. And humanitarian assistance amounts to 13 billion for all the poor and all the crises uh, in the world. And not only uh, 13 billion, but the requirements, the appeals for funding uh, 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 amount to the uh, 26 billion. So all humanitarian assistance appeals are underfunded by 50%. And I must say, in view of the military spending and whatever else we do, uh, it is um, uh, very amazing to me to see these figures. Then in addition, knowing that uh, the environment, as you also said, is a driver of conflict, of migration, that uh, a country like Germany uh, and many others goes slow and step back from our uh, developmental goals. I find uh, amazing, embarrassing, I must say. And we should always think that we all signed the uh, uh, 2030 development agenda, leaving nobody behind is the first goal of the development agenda. So my feeling, at least, is that we are leaving hundreds and hundreds, thousands and billions even behind. And um, uh, one message probably that could uh, emerge from this discussion here, and maybe from your further interventions, is that we really must do better in terms of being serious about not leaving too many people behind. With that? Uh, let me see who wants to intervene. Um, I saw over there the first question in the first row here. And I would uh, suggest we always take three questions. And please say who you are uh, when you raise your question. So you and then the two here. No, over there first. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Garrett Kurtz. I'm a PhD student at King's College London. Thanks a lot for your lecture. Um, Excellency, um, it was really fascinating insights about uh, your very impressive work. Um, two quick questions about your more more recent uh, work. First, um, on the, the HIPAA report that you already mentioned, um, you said that you are quite satisfied with how the security uh, the secretariat um, dealt with your recommendations. But are you also satisfied? with how member states um, dealt with your recommendations. Um, did they also listen as carefully as Guterres did? And, and secondly, um, 
you're also a member of uh, Secretary General Guterres uh, high-level advisory board on mediation um, which he introduced as his push for prevention basically I would be interested in your experience now that this board has met several times um, what is discussed and and what contribution can this board make to prevention at the UN? Thank you. Now, who is, comes first here? Um, hello, my name is Abdullah. I come from Syria and I'm a student of politics at Bart College Berlin. Um, I would like to thank you for your um, uh, yeah, inspiring uh, speech just moments ago. Um, I have a question. You said national reconciliation was the greatest thing to bring about peace in your country and I think in many different conflicts. Uh, so in the case of my country, it's been almost nine years, um, ongoing war and it's brutal war. And um, the losses were um, incredible. How can we achieve this national reconciliation in the context of the Syrian war? And uh, sometimes I feel it's not possible. Sometimes I, yeah, sometimes I think I should be more optimistic, but I need some advice, some, <clears throat> yeah, from experts in this, uh, this field. Thank you very much. So uh, my name is Lilas. I'm also from Syria and uh, I'm a BART student as well. Um, my question is also related to Syria, of course. Um, as my colleague just said that after eight years or nine years of war going on in Syria, how would the UN proceed in doing developments in Syria? Because as you know, now the situation might never end. So if, the, if development will start in Syria, the uh, political uh, situation will be established. And then um, the government or the dictatorship in Syria will remain as it is. And they will understand that there's no consequences for the action that has been done for the last nine years. But on the other hand, if the country just stayed as it is and no development plan will be managed in Syria, Syria will be just, it's, 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 it's Iraq right now. There's no, no education, many refugees inside Syria and outside. And how do you think that this will be solved? Want to take this three? So, on the, uh, I'm no longer in uh, on the high-level board of mediation of the Secretary General. Uh, it was a two-year, uh, September, October 2017 to 2019. But uh, I quit because uh, I'm uh, of all the members, I'm the only one at the edge of the wall. <laughs> Every time uh, there's a meeting, I have to travel all the way to Helsinki, to uh, New York, <laughs> when others, you know, they're flying in from Europe, from whatever. So just this is the, but I stay in touch with the Secretary General privately and uh, uh, <clears throat> particularly reporting to him on uh, developments in my own country. Uh, so I'm no longer involved, but uh, the Secretary General took seriously, uh, well, his own conviction on prevention. 
you know, he didn't wait to read our uh, report. Uh, being who he is, I know him uh, personally for many, many years. Uh, I know his mind, uh, so he didn't need anyone to tell him that prevention, that uh, he has to focus, the UN has to focus more on how to assist in preventing conflicts. And we all know, you know, uh, easier said than done, as I explained uh, earlier. You know, sometimes uh, you, we can see the seeds of conflict being planted through policies, you know, through legislation, through uh, discrimination. You can feel the tensions in the community. And sometimes we even alert the leaders concerned. And they dismiss it. So this happens all the time. Uh, so the Secretary General, all the way from New York, very difficult. He or anyone, uh, any UN mission, you know, original mission, to really uh, uh, <clears throat> help in prevention. What the UN can do, that has been my advice, is identify institutions, individuals, in some of the more critical countries, or in the countries surrounding that particular uh, uh, country that you know you want to focus on, and provide them support uh, so that they can uh, uh, organize themselves. They can uh, start uh, activities related to prevention of conflict, because there are many who communities who, who do that. When I was in Guinea-Bissau representing the Secretary General. One thing that impressed me most was how the people there, and these are humble people, simple people in the community, and I visit uh, extensively all these communities. I walk through the villages, chat with the people. It was amazing how peaceful it was in these communities. They don't allow the violence orchestrated by leaders, political leaders, military leaders, to come to descend to their community. They don't allow anyone to manipulate. So how then, so I would deal with them often. Uh, <clears throat> so the UN has to identify, and, and the UN or the European Union, uh, institutions that have resources to provide support to civil society, to NGOs, and not only national NGOs, I know there are some international NGOs that have been doing remarkable work in the field. In, uh, right now, in Thailand, in southern Thailand, there, there, are, there are conflict there. In Myanmar, a lot of NGOs, international NGOs doing the work, and sometimes easier for an individual easier for an NGO to do uh, conflict prevention initiatives than the UN, because the UN is too visible. You mentioned the UN, the government is immediately upset. But if it's an NGO, individuals, you can get away. So that's how, and so the UN should identify these people, and there are. 
Uh, the other question, sorry. Yes, they did. We did, I have to say, we did extensive consultations. No one complained that they didn't, li we didn't listen to them. Me yeah, member states, uh, civil society, think tanks, etc. So they were uh, very pleased. There are, of course, some uh, nuances, some details, uh, which was really uh, sometimes, uh, I was amazed. Uh, conflict prevention. You know, it's supposed to be totally innocent. But one country, during the debate in General Assembly, he said, we hope that conflict prevention is not an excuse to interfere in the internal affairs of a country. <laughs> So that was one. I don't mention the name of the country. Uh, and, uh, so there is suspicion about that. And as you know, there have been controversy about a UN responsibility called the right, the responsibility to protect. There is, uh, and that happened with the Libya situation. When uh, the situation in Benghazi was invoked, eminent threat to civilian population in Benghazi. So you need to protect civilian population there. Russia and China then abstain to enable a resolution security council. Well, from a responsibility to protect, it became a regime change. So these send alarms all over. No more uh, fall into this. So it really did a lot of damage to the trust among the member states that uh, would excuse of protection civilian. But when you deal with situations like uh, in, uh, I remember you know, talking with uh, some um, top military commanders, peacekeeping in Congo, a Brazilian general, very uh, top professional. His answer was, it's not only a responsibility. For me, if I'm in the field, if there is need to protect civilians, it's my moral obligation to do it. Uh, if you ask Rwanda, people in Rwanda, they completely agree with the duty, the responsibility to protect, obvious reasons. But you ask others, they say, it is an avenue for in, uh, regime change, avenue for interference. So there is no uh, you know, completely peaceful. Syria, uh, God, you know, uh, who am I to, uh, to, uh, to tell you uh, anything, you know? Uh, yeah, and uh, a few years ago, I was in Geneva. I was there with the former President Marty Atisari. A question, that was already six, seven years ago. A question was asked of me, from me to me, uh, about uh, Syria. And I gave uh, a painful, honest answer. I didn't want to give uh, politically correct answers. You know, I said, I'm sorry, I have to say, there are wars that will go on forever. Many, many more people will die. It will stop when everybody are exhausted. 
This is what happened in Iran-Iraq war. It went for eight years. More than a million people killed in the Iran-Iraq war. And then they negotiate and the war ended. And it was easier in Iran-Iraq war because really there are two powerful institutions there. When Saddam Hussein decided we sue for peace, it happened. When Khomeini or Khamenei said well, it happened. Because there are strong state institutions, leaders that made a decision. Syria, as you know, a lot of uh, interference. Who, so that's, you know, uh, you don't have only Assad, you have many other regional interests. So uh, <clears throat> I'm not able to, but then, on, uh, to give you an answer, but on reconciliation. Well, I have to say, painful, but you have no choice. If you want to build, rebuild the country, rebuild communities, rebuild families, you don't forget, obviously, because no one is going to pass a legislation, national or international, say, forget. That, uh, but you have to have the, the courage to say, I'm not going to allow my anger, the hatred, the violence of the past to dominate our uh, present. Because this is what happened with us in Timor. You know, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> many, many people died proportionally to the population. Our uh, very, very high. Uh, and yet we, des we decide, forgive each other uh, at national level and reconcile with Indonesia. And that's why the Indonesian side absolutely was surprised, pleased, that we understood their own problems. In the sense, we said Indonesia also came out of a dictatorship in 2008, 2009. Uh, sorry, 98, uh, 98, 99. The end of the dictatorship. And it was not easy, the transition to uh, democracy in Indonesia. So we should not, side, start going for an international tribunal that would exacerbate the situation in Indonesia. Uh, so we refused, and even though we were criticized. Uh, you had an advantage. You are a very small country and uh, very homogeneous compared to uh, the situation yes. in Syria. No? So shall we uh, take a few more? I apologize. Uh, they are the hands up. I know we are uh, beyond time, but I think you all agree that wine can wait and peace comes first. So... <laughs> <laughs> I saw uh, the, I take the hands the way I saw it. I saw this hand and that hand and here in front. And then I take a second round. Oh, yeah, sorry. Syrian? So we had already, two. yeah, you with your green jacket. No, no, wait. <laughs> Um, hello, my name is Bettina Lucia. Um, first of all, thank you for your service, not only to your country, but to the world. We never thank men like you and women enough who have done so much and have given up so much of their lives to serve those that need us. Um, 
When I joined the UN 15 years ago, we were really worried about three Ask big crises. Yeah. So that more have yep. a chance. We were worried about three big difficult crises. Now we have like seven huge humanitarian crises. Today, in Geneva, they are asking for four billion dollars for Yemen. We're going to feed like double as many people as the World Food Program did then last year. For Yemen, what is your Analysis, what is your advice? What can the world do to end this horrible disaster? Uh, the second one there. Shall we take more than three? Oh, hi, my name is Daniel. I'm a Hertz student. And I want to ask you kind of the same about the most forgotten conflict in Africa, which is Western Sahara. I mean, I think your conflict, your, well, your background, your Timor-Leste, it's kind of similar to this one. There's an oppression side. Uh, they've been colonized, oppressed for 30 years. So what can we learn from that? Thank you. Yeah, the front row. Uh, not front, but more or less front. Ursula Schäfer-Preuss, UN Women, German National Committee. I've been in development cooperation for all my life. Thanks a lot for your presentation and your insights on the processes in your own country and the relationship with Indonesia and Timor-Leste. I wonder, as you made really a very strong um, plea for prevention of conflicts in the overall uh, UN Security Council reform. And we do have now via um, Resolution 1325 on women, peace and security. And I do wonder, as women are so important in the overall um, environment to prevent conflicts, how we can move on there. Would you have some recommendations for us in particular, as Germany is co-sponsoring a resolution on that during the Security Council uh, session right now? Thank you. I would say we take three more and then try to bundle them. Uh, yes, uh, the two there in the back. Uh, hello, my name is Livia. Uh, I come from Brazil. And I am happy to, to see how my country contributed from the birth and the formation of Timor-Leste within our possibilities, of course. And my question comes exactly there. Uh, how do you see South-South uh, cooperation contributing for peace building and peacekeeping in the world? What is the role that differentiates South-South cooperation from North-South cooperation or institutions in this matter? Uh, thank you uh, to uh, President Ramos Horta. Uh, my name is Anwar. I'm from Indonesia. So. Um, this is my, uh, my personal experience. Um, I have two cousins, one from my mother's side, uh, one from my father's side. Uh, they, were, uh, they work in Timor-Leste as a teacher, and after the re uh, referendum, they were forced back home to Java. And at that time, um, I could sense there were a lot of angers, there were a lot of frustrations and hatred. And, um, I could also imagine that it was also happening on the other side. Um, so um, my question is that you said that um, the fighters and the leaders, um, they could restrain themselves to uh, demonize the opponents, in this case is Indonesia. Um, how did 
you do that and how did you pass it on to the grassroots level? Because uh, we can see today that to demonize our opponent is very easy. Let it be the immigrants, the uh, LGBT community, the uh, those who have different religious. So that's my question. Thank yeah. you. And quickly here. Uh, yeah. Uh, short Hello. question. Uh, yeah. So my name is Sushan. I'm from Nepal. And it, this is a question that's a bit different. But um, the climate change is happening and there's glacial there's glacial flooding happening all over my country right now. And in such a time, how is the UN working together with government institutes to really fight against climate change? Because this doesn't really come on the news and we don't really know what's going on. So as a part of the UN, what are you doing and what is the UN doing to tackle climate change on a global scale? Thank you. Maybe I start with uh, you, that I remember the question, because they're all... <laughs> I can, <laughs> yeah, I can remind you. So, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, we had a Paris Treaty uh, and the subsequent uh, Marrakesh and so many, many, many others. Uh, each country, we committed ourselves to uh, the national development, the national uh, action plan uh, so that... Uh, Every country contributing, you know, uh, de delivering on the promises as we signed the uh, Paris Treaty uh, to lower uh, CO2 emission. And uh, as I was in Paris at the time, uh, leading our delegation in a press conference, uh, I said, uh, well, our uh, CO2 emission is like zero Zero, zero, zero. I told the journalist, you can add any zero you want, you know, uh, how it is happening. So, but still, we also have responsibilities. We also cut trees. We, we also dump garbage everywhere. We also victims of garbage that come from elsewhere and uh, land on our uh, shores. So, no matter we have a greater or less responsibilities. Each of us must do what we have to do to save our forests, to replant, to clean our rivers, our lakes. So if we do it just in our own country, without uh, always you know, blaming others, you know, pointing figures, fingers at the US, uh, at the Europeans, or at China, at the India, you know, because these are the biggest polluters, yeah. Uh, but, uh, so that's uh, each of us in our own country, because that's part of the treaty, national action plan to mitigate, uh, to uh, uh, replant and all. Then you have the problem of countries that don't have resources. Well, that's when the, the richer countries so far have failed or when they have delivered the money to a fund, they make it so difficult for uh, communities, for countries like ours to apply and get uh, necessary assistance to, uh, uh, for the different activities like you know, uh, mitigation, adaptation, and all of that. The, what was the other question? Yeah, if I could quickly add to yeah. this. A big problem in the environmental field is that the developing countries are expected to take a loan 
for CO2 reduction, which is totally nutty because if you reduce CO2 emissions in uh, Nepal or somewhere, they go into the atmosphere and I benefit too. Uh, so I should pay, pay you for at least 50% of the CO2 emissions reduced. So I find uh, we are really uh, uh, working there against our own interest because then the uh, uh, consequences of climate change hit us. So the, that in brief, the questions were Yemen. What <laughs> the biggest disaster at present probably? Uh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It is uh, the most abominable failure of the international uh, community. And I cannot understand in how in the midst of that conflict, some countries still transfer weapons to the different sides of the conflict. You know, in the midst, in the midst of, uh, you know, you, should, you would notice as uh, students, as researchers, academics, uh, one industry that did not suffer at all from the financial crisis of 2008-2009, precisely the weapons industry, exponentially increased. So I, ca I, cannot, I can only say in desperation, in shame as a human being, how it have come to the situation like Yemen. Of course, Yemen, Yemen leaders, the different leaders in the country, yeah, they are responsible. Like South Sudan, we cannot blame the UN or failure of the international community. We do blame. But how about the two leaders, the president and the vice president, who led all this uh, civil war, how were they not able to sit down and talk? So anyway, my answer didn't really, <laughs> doesn't help the situation. I just say, I, I surrender, you know, in shame. Uh, you ask about Western Sahara. The, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm very familiar with the situation in Western, Western Sahara. The positive thing about it all, you know, is that war has not resumed. They agreed on a referendum that never happened. The Polisario forces, based on the other side, in Tindu for Algerian side, and in, no, not sorry, not in Algerian side, in Western Sahara territory, that not occupied by, by Morocco, they decide to freeze the war way back already 20 years. In spite of the frustration, neither side has uh, resorted to settle for once and for all. The Secretary General has appointed more recently former president of Germany uh, as Kulaf, as he is a special representative. You cannot get a more important uh, special representative than the former president of Germany. You know, is is a bit like you know, uh, if between the president of Germany and inviting me, you know, is a bit like inviting, you know, um, uh, first class soccer player and uh, someone in the audience. <laughs> so uh, the secretary general did. 
the, the, the Secretary General, because he did on purpose, I, I believe, you know, to have someone like former President of Germany as his special representative, and the President accepted. Well, that brings a lot of pressure on the parties uh, involved. And uh, so that's all I can, I can say. The women. Women and peace. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, I go by, let's say, by my own country. You know, we are very new democracy, but I would say uh, in Timor-Leste we have, a, uh, I think, almost to 37% of parliamentarians are women. And many cabinet members are women. At the civil service, it's still very limited those who are at the top leadership. Because civil service started years ago, uh, wrong, male dominated. Uh, so where we could make the political decisions, we made the political decisions. And uh, so we have a large representation of women. But that's not enough. They have to be also in, in economics, in business. And they, Become, they are very, very active. Uh, at, uh, now, in terms of, uh, uh, you, I, I look at the situation in Liberia. Uh, women in Liberia played a very critical role in forcing men to end the conflict. Because there was a tough woman to begin with. Yeah, there were quite a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> and that happened in many countries, in Guinea-Bissau and uh, in my own country. Uh, and that's why the Secretary General uh, started with Ban Ki-moon, to be fair. But with Antonio Guterres, there's an increasing number of senior positions at the level of Under Secretary General, Assistant Secretary General, uh, for uh, women undertaking this. And some are in a very critical position, like in uh, Iraq, I think, was a woman. Uh, very impressive. Mali. Could I uh, could we have your um, uh, support if I were to suggest the following? Uh, since you mentioned uh, uh, the um, a Germany will table in the Security Council a resolution on women in crisis situations. This resolution has, as so many UN resolutions, no financial statement attached. It's just words. No? So could we have your support for suggesting to the minister that maybe he could uh, get an, um, a budget to implement this resolution and then the money could, for example, go to UNDP or somewhere and uh, so that we actually can strengthen the women and um, uh, uh, not only have words again. Would you support us? Uh, if that helps, yes. <laughs> no, no problem. No, <laughs> Your word counts. No problem. I'm no. getting signs that we should uh, come uh, to an end. Uh, I don't know why, because... So, huh? Yeah. The Indonesian question, and probably very quickly, Brazil. And then we go for the wine. It will get hot otherwise. Yeah. Uh, as I said uh, in, my, in my remarks, uh, we did have an armed struggle, you know, uh, fighters, uh, valiant fighters that fought against the Indonesian army. Uh, many Indonesian uh, young men uh, lost their lives in the battlefield in Timur. The cemeteries are there. 
but our first leader of the country is Nicolau Lobato, a super charismatic individual. He died in combat, and he always said from day one, we are not fighting the Indonesian people. We are fighting for freedom, for independence. We are not fighting the Indonesian people. And all these years, you never would never see in our uh, discourse, statements, anything demonizing the Indonesian side. Uh, and that's why after independence, it was easier to lead our people to reconciliation, to accept. It was not 100% uh, uh, so peaceful because we, were, we have civil society, uh, many of our NGOs would criticize us for not supporting international tribunal, etc., etc. But we resisted that. And uh, I remember speaking to many young people in my country one day, a number like this, several hundred people. I said this, when we fought for independence, we fought because we believed in it, because of convictions. But we also fight with our brains. So when we fight for human rights, for justice, we fight because we believe. But you also have to fight with your brains. Meaning what? Well, sometimes justice has to be postponed. Has to wait. When you are in a conflict, and the conflict has to end through negotiations, you cannot then expect the other side, uh, well, one point in the agreement with you to end this conflict is that you will all go to jail. <laughs> well, uh, so, um, so we rejected an international tribunal. And because in Indonesia, uh, at the time, there were a lot of... Uh, Problems in Ambon, Kalimantan, Bugenese, Dayaks, Muslim, Christians in Ambon, the military is still powerful. And then, if we bring in the issue of international tribunal, God, create havoc in Indonesia. It would mean we don't understand the delicate transition in Indonesia. So, the Indonesian military, the Indonesian leaders were very appreciative of that. Because some they thought we were going to be rabid uh, radicals and uh, we want justice, revenge. No, we said no. That's why we developed this uh, great uh, relation, relationship. At, at, even at people-to-people -people level, I tell you, anecdotes. If you are from somewhere else in Southeast Asia, you, you're a young person, you go to Indonesia, you overstay the visa, you are arrested, you put in jail. If it's a Timorese, because we, and our young people do this all the time, they forget always to look at the visa, the passport, <laughs> and then they get to immigration, the passport had expired, the visa had expired, but because he is a Timorese, the Indonesian immigration, okay, go, go. Uh, so even at the people level, tremendous understanding, sympathy towards... Uh, so. <clears throat> And the Brazilian, uh, you know, talk about South-South uh, co cooperation. Well, it's not a new phenomenon. Many, many countries have done that. And we do this also with Brazil and other countries. Trilateral arrangement. 
For instance, a third world country may have a lot of qualified people to help us, but don't have the finances. So we get experts, whether from Thailand, from Indonesia, from Philippines, or wherever, from Africa, but financed by Japan or by the European Union. They pay for it. So we do this uh, trilateral uh, arrangement. And we have, in my country, we have, we have had people from all over the world. Uh, we have even one economist from Gambia, little country in West Africa. He was one of our top uh, economists. He was paid by the World Bank to advise us. And we have people from uh, all over the world. Now less, as we educate our people, we send hundreds of Timorese to study in Thailand, Indonesia, Australia, with our own scholarships. Now they're the ones taken over. Yes, thanks very much. And I think um, since um, uh, we uh, want uh, to have some concrete outcomes from this discussion, I heard actually three messages emerge. The one that you repeated several times is that one should enter into fair negotiations, open-minded uh, negotiations, aim at reconciliation. Don't push your opponent or interlocutor into a corner. The second uh, message was that we should all do our part and not just blame others for things not happening, but be, uh, show solidarity and uh, take our fair share. And when it comes to fair share taking, um, I think we heard from you that maybe the donor governments or the countries who can afford it should consider financing uh, peace observers or conflict observers uh, from civil society or at least independent personalities. That would be one initiative to support more women so that they can help uh, enter into um, uh, the peace support. And then there was a third point that came out strongly, that maybe we think twice about uh, weapons and military exports, where we send them to. We have rules, but the rules don't seem to be working so well, so that we can uh, prevent Yemen's uh, of the future. So, Mr. President, thanks for all these thoughts, for this encouragement and the challenges. It was very nice to have you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.